again, everyone. Welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Minus two playoff teams, the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell, and alongside our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. And boy, Mark, besides the point that the uh, both teams are out of the playoffs now, just a lot of stuff going on over this week, and we're going to look at it all tonight. Yeah, it's, uh, it is a sad situation that both of the teams that we support are out. Uh, but I think, frankly, I think it's worse for Reds fans only because a lot more was expected out of the Reds than the Indians. And uh, you could argue the Indians overachieved and the Reds severely underachieved. And I think most Red fans would agree with that. Well, we've done this program now four years, Mark. And we've gone through three managerial changes, two with the Indians, and now this week, one with the Cincinnati Reds, where Dusty Baker, of course, as everyone knows, is out as manager of the Reds. So let's start off the show tonight by talking about the dismissal of Dusty Baker. First of all, were you surprised at the move? I was, a little bit. Uh, I, I I thought they would give him maybe the first month of next year uh, to try and, and make this team a little more emotional, if not more productive. Uh, but I, I think he really dug his own grave in a lot of ways. He uh, he badmouthed the organization because they did not sign Marlon Bird, and he, I think he was right on that. They should have signed Marlon Bird, and, and at least blocked him from the Pirates picking him up because he ended up hurting the Reds. But uh, he, he also uh, went to bat for his batting coach, ironically. And uh, when they suggested, when they, the front office suggested they were going to fire him, uh, Brooke Jacoby, uh, Dusty <clears throat> defended him, I think, too much and made the statement, well, if you're going to get rid of him, you might as well get rid of me. So they did. But aside from that, I, I think Dusty... I wouldn't accuse him of losing control of the team. I think the team went to sleep. And uh, that that happens to some teams. They get complacent. Uh, but this team, when you look back at uh, the beginning of the year, uh, a lot of people thought they were going to win. Uh, frankly, I did not. I did not think they were going to win. I did not think they had the offense to win. I think uh, I, I picked them third in the division although I picked Milwaukee ahead of them, not Pittsburgh. But the Reds, if, if, if an amateur like me can look at that, that team and see the weaknesses that laid ahead for them offensively, it's frustrating to think that the guys running the show, who, up, who basically know more than me, they can't see the same thing that uh, the, the the average fan sees, and I don't think my observation about this team's offensive weaknesses was anything earth-shattering, but it, it they came to pass, and a team that was supposed to win 100 games won 90, and that's that's quite a bit of a you know it's a 10 percent reduction in production, uh, and uh, the team never recovered from it. Mark, of course, we're going to get into our ask us segment coming up in the bottom half of the hour. But I want to get into one of the questions right now from one of our listeners, Jury Pill 87. And it brings up a, a topic that you just brought up. Dusty Baker gets fired, but Walt Jockety did not. 
And he basically comes back and says, why not? And I'm going to ask you the same question. You just mentioned here that the Reds were expected to win anywhere from 96 to 100 games this year. They won 97 a year ago and won the division. They they fell seven games off of that pace this year and finished in third place. So, I mean, if you're going to look at Dusty Baker and see what the problem is, and you can look at this team at the beginning of the year and project them to finish third and know exactly what their problems were going to be back in March, how come Walt Jockety still has his job? Well, that, that's, a, that's a good question, and I think if you were to look at what each respective individual did for the team, Dusty Baker versus Walt Jockety, if you're going to take that position, you could certainly argue that Dusty Baker, with what he had to work with, certainly did a better job than Walt Jockety. What, what did Walt do this year that made this team better starting in spring training? I can't think of one thing he added to that team that made him better. And this is the same thing that happened after the 2010 season where he did absolutely nothing and the team that won in 2010 won only 79 games in 2011. So the general manager is supposed to anticipate and see things happening, look at his players objectively and say, is this guy going to perform for us the way we expect him to? And if you look at the Reds' lineup this year with Todd Frazier and uh, the catching position, shortstop, certainly for the first half of the year, left field, these were automatic outs for this team. You, you have four or five automatic outs in the team for the team. And then you have Jay Bruce striking out almost 190 times, uh, Joey Votto striking out far more than he should, and it's... It's no surprise that the team performed the way it did, but you could argue, and Dusty Baker could argue, hey, I did a better job living up to my responsibilities as field manager than you did, Walt, living up to your responsibilities as general manager. So the question is well-founded. Why didn't Walt get fired? And I think he's on a short leash. This... Well, Tell me one deal he did this year to make the team better. Well, the only deal that he really did was the Shinsu Chu trade. I mean, everybody's going to fall back on that deal, but is it going to help the team in the long run? It certainly didn't this year. Yeah, Chu had a great year, but they didn't win the division. They didn't win as many games as they did a year ago without Chu in the lineup. And now next year when yes, they go into the season, they may not have him. Yeah, I'm not talking about that, that deal. I'm talking about from opening day on. When you're the general manager, you look at this team, you just had an injury to your starting left fielder, number four hitter. What do you do to make that team better from that point? That's where the general manager makes his pay. Now, if... if if you get on the phone, gotten... Mark, if you're the GM, you get on the phone and you call everybody that you can think of trying to come up with at least, if not another, another number four hitter, at least a formidable out that you can put in left field. Exactly. And when you have your, your second string catcher injured, and even before he's injured, he's hitting 0.88, and you have a rookie catcher behind the plate, you, he didn't bring any catching support in. He didn't bring anybody in to relieve Todd Frazier, who was hitting 
in the in the 220s for a long part of the year. Cozart, the first half of the year, was hitting 215 to 220. He had a good second half, actually a good August and September, and he get his average up to 250. But again, you, you can't have those kinds of holes in your lineup and not do something about it. And again, left field was the black hole this this time for the Reds. But that's why I'm so frustrated with Jockety because he didn't do anything to improve the team. And if you're if you're telling me that Ryan Ludwig, who was out for four months, is going to be your your stud, go-to number four hitter going into the most important part of the year, then you <laughs> you're smoking something. The guy was hurt. You can't blame me for getting hurt, but you can't expect a guy to step in after being out for four months, no spring training, or no, effectively no spring training, and, and step into a pennant race like that. It, it's just absurd. Mark, you brought up the fact about Marlon Byrd earlier in the show, and Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports talked about what he felt was a big mistake by the Reds' front office by not either going after Bird themselves from the New York Mets on the waiver wire, or at least blocking him from going to the Pittsburgh Pirates, because that ended up being one of the worst moves that the Reds didn't do this year, because Bird came back to bite them in the wild card game. Let's hear what Ken Rosenthal had to say last week after the Reds lost to the Pirates in that wild card game. Well, I received a text from an executive seconds after that home run, and the executive asked, how could they not have blocked him? And what he was referring to was the waiver process in August. The Reds were behind the Pirates in the standings, so they could have put a claim in on Bird. Worst that could have happened is that they would have ended up with a player, cost them less than $150,000, and that would have prevented the Pirates from getting him at a time when everybody knew the Pirates were looking for a power-hitting outfielder. This was a blunder. Mark, everybody was talking about the lack of emotion that Dusty Baker showed this year. How he And you said at the top of the show how the team was basically asleep. Was Walt Jockety asleep when this came across his desk that day that Marlon Byrd ended up in Pittsburgh? No, I don't think he could have been asleep. I think he, he made a tactical decision not to do it. He certainly knew about it. And how could you not sign a guy like that for 150 grand when you have players on the Reds bench hitting 200? It's it just... There's no argument that there's no answer that works for 150 grand. You go out and and you get the guy. How bad could he hurt your team? I mean, this is a proven number. He was hitting number four for for the Pirates. How how could you not bring this guy in? And I'm not saying he'd have made a difference, but you certainly don't want to give the Pirates more ammunition than they had. And you have to give give credit to the Pirates. They went out and signed him and Justin Morneau. And they, they were better than the Reds at the end of the year, and that's because their general manager aggressively tried to win and not lose. Mark, if Marlon Byrd plays the way he did with Pittsburgh in Cincinnati, it is a great improvement over what the Reds had in left field, even with Ryan Ludwig included. Yeah, and don't forget, Marlon Byrd would have had the benefit of ha- having Chu and Votto hitting in front of him, which he did not have in Pittsburgh. So it's it, you could argue his production would have been even greater with the Reds than it would have been with the Pirates. But again, you, you made a very good point. Uh, it, it wasn't something that Walt wasn't aware of. 
He made the decision not to do it, and Dusty was very upset about that. Dusty Baker, to his credit, he wanted Marlon Byrd for all the right reasons, all the reasons we talked about. But the Reds, <laughs> there is no explanation because it wasn't money. I mean, t tell me what the explanation was. That they had to take somebody off the 40-man roster? Well, so what? You're trying to win a pennant. And they had a chance to do that. And when you're when you, in the playoffs like that and you don't try to win and you have some kind of lame excuse, well, you don't go out and get a proven bat like him, like Marlon Bird, for 150 grand. There is no explanation that works. Well, I don't want this to turn into a a Walt Jockety bashing situation, but I got to say this, Mark. That being said, there are guys in baseball that seem to get a great reputation throughout the game for doing nothing. In my opinion, Tony Larusa is one of those guys. And when you go back and you look at Walt Jockety's record as a GM, both at St. Louis and in Cincinnati, really what has this guy done to get the reputation that he is such a great general manager? Well, I think he's done, obviously, a lot of good things, and but he's also had some very good talent to work with. And his a lot of the players that are on the Reds roster now did not come from Walt Jockety. They came from the previous general managers. And so he has not demonstrated yet, I, I think, an aggressiveness that most fans would like to see. Other, he made, in my opinion, he made two good trades. He made the Matt Latos trade and he made the Chew trade. But the Chew trade did not lead to a pennant. So the, the players the Reds gave up for Chew, who they're now going to lose forever, uh, it, it, it didn't work. He, did he have a good year? Yes, he did. He performed. But if it doesn't lead to a pennant, then you have to go back and, and second-guess yourself a little bit and say, look, we gave up some real talent to get him, and it, it, it just didn't work out for whatever reason. So I don't fault him. I will never fault a general manager for being aggressive. If you make a trade and it doesn't work, okay, that happens at times. But in this case, and we're talking about not being aggressive throughout the entire year. Ludwig broke his shoulder on opening day. How could you not go replace your number four hitter for the entire year? How many games did they lose in the first four months not having a legitimate number four hitter that they could have won, which would have made the last week insignificant? Or it wouldn't have mattered because they would have had a big enough lead. So that's what I'm frustrated about. I'm not trying to bash him, but I would love to know what is your what's your theory? Why would you not replace your number four hitter all year? At the trade deadline, you don't replace him. At the waiver wire, you don't replace him. You rely on a guy that's on the DL? Are you kidding me? So the, the well, fans I've talked to, that's their frustration with Walt. <clears throat> and I can understand that frustration because winning doesn't occur for a team year after year after year. We talked last year about the Nationals not throwing Strasburg, shutting him down when it came to the playoffs. How I thought it was a major mistake that winning does not 
present itself every single year, Mark. And look at what happened to Washington this year. When you look at the Reds this year, there are no guarantees that they are going to be as good if a better ball club next season, no matter what Jockety does. Things happen. Ludwig gets injured. Who knows? Maybe next year it's Phillips. Maybe next year it's Votto. Could be could be Bruce. Who knows what the winner's gonna going to bring. But winning is not guaranteed every year. And when you've got a shot, when you've got a team that can win, I think you've got to go for it that season. Katie barred the door on the future. And Jockety didn't do it. Yeah, and you look, you compare that to the performance of the Indians this year, and you compare what their front office did compared to what the Reds did. And there is no question in my mind that they, they certainly outperformed the Reds. I mean, they started off with, with, with the signing of uh, Francona. I mean, that was, that was a major plus for that organization. And they, they seemed to make the right player moves all year. And the thing I really liked about the Indians was they were down in September, what, five and a half games out of the wild card with about two weeks to play? And they come back and qualify, won ten in a row. That team was exciting to watch. I was, I was amped up watching that team far, far more than watching the Reds. They, they had a lot of spirit. The bench was alive. I mean, they, they were sliding hard. They were running hard. And that's not what you saw with Cincinnati. Well, last year at the end of the season, the Indians seemed to be in the same spot attitude-wise as the Reds are this year. And as you said, they brought in Francona, they bring in Swisher, they bring in Bourne. The attitude has completely changed and they make the playoffs. Now, when you look at Cincinnati, before I get your prediction on who's going to be the new manager, tell me the short list of guys that they are talking to about becoming the new manager of the team. Well, Jim Riggleman, who's in the organization, he, I think he's a triple-A. Uh, Brian Price, their current pitching coach. And there, there's two or three other former managers that are out there that I, I know they'll, they'll at least probably talk to. Uh, Jim Tracy, I understand, they're, they're going to be talking to. So there's not a long list of people that are, that are likely candidates, unless you want to go after a Joe Girardi. I don't think he'd come to Cincinnati. Uh, I don't know who else I would recommend. I mean, what I've been hearing is that it's going to be Brian Price. And I, the, some of the players actually went to the front office and, and lobbied for him. So I'd be surprised if he doesn't get it. But you never know. There could be a surprise out there. Well, and I've always thought you've got to be careful what you wish for. And the players are going to the front office and asking for <laughs> Brian Price. Now, that's a great uh, promotion for Brian Price, because obviously if he doesn't get the Reds job, he comes from Seattle, the Seattle front office thinks a lot of him, and he is the prime candidate to be the Mariners manager. So it's obvious that Price is going to get either the Reds job or the, man the manager's job. But when players go to the front office and they lobby for a manager, you know, it puts the manager kind of in a catch-22, wouldn't you think, Mark? Because how do you come down as a disciplinarian on players that actually went to management to get you the job. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And, but on the other hand, uh, how do you work with guys who lobby against you? <laughs> I mean, you, you've got to manage them whether they like you or love you. I, I remember the saying by uh, Casey Stingle. He said the art of managing is that the, there's going to. He said the way it is, there's going to be ten guys on the team that love you. 
It's going to be ten guys on the team that hate you. It's the five guys that are undecided you got to worry about. So you're going to have factions on a team. You're going to have people pissed off because they're they're not playing enough or whatever. So I'm not sure a popularity contest is going to impact a, a professional manager that much. But the the thing that the Reds have to get, I think, is somebody who is conversant, at least, with the sabermetrics and the new statistical analysis that's available for baseball. And Dusty Baker just totally, 100% ignored. He, he never looked into that as even an option. And I think in the end, that's what fans, and younger fans particularly, it just drove them insane, some of the stuff that Dusty did uh, tactically during the, the game day management process. And that's what I think got him fired. He just, he was old school. He was proud of it. He wasn't going to change. And it's ironic that all this, everything we're talking about, would, we'd not, we would not be talking about it, at least yet we wouldn't, if the Reds would have won that one game against Pittsburgh last week. No, you're right. Dusty Baker would probably still be the manager. They'd be playing against St. Louis and instead of Pittsburgh, which, by the way, is tied up at two games apiece and will go to game five on Wednesday afternoon in St. Louis. That has turned out to be one heck of a series, Mark. But then again, nobody expected that it wouldn't be just simply because of the way that the Central Division was played this year between those three teams. Yes, but I, I would say, and I don't know who would disagree with me, both of those teams are better than the Reds. They're, they're just better. They've they got more pitching. They've got more speed. they they got better management. They're better. So the Reds are going to be faced with a challenge next year of, of facing two teams, one of which had the best record in baseball, the St. Louis Cardinals, and, and a, a, a Pittsburgh team that's much better now than they were at the beginning of the year. The Reds have to make some moves. And before the show is over, I, I made a list of, of ten things I think they should do going into next year. So uh, when you want to discuss that, I'll be happy to share my, uh, my brain cells with you. Well, I know we've got one more show coming up next week. Uh, we're going to devote that show to what both teams have to do in order to go farther in next year's playoffs. But, you know, Mark... When you look, I think the Reds need to do what the Indians did a year ago. And nobody was more upset with the Indians' front office and team than I was at the end of last season. I didn't think there was any way in the world that Terry Francona would become manager of this team. I never thought he would even give it a second thought. But when the Indians brought him on board, it changed the entire attitude of not only the city, but the front office, the management, and the ownership. And that's something that the Reds, I think, need. Maybe not something that is going to change the entire attitude of the front office or the city, because Lord knows the Reds have a better winning history over the last 25 years than the Indians do. But when you look at it, Mark, they need somebody that's going to be enthusiastic and can breathe some fresh air into this ball club. They have got to play with more urgency than they did this season, wouldn't you think? Well, absolutely. And I, if you look at the Reds' salaries this year, 
you can understand the complacency. And there, I don't necessarily blame Walt Jockety for this, but you've got a pitcher with barely a 500 record in Bronson Arroyo making $16,445,000 a year. You've got Jay Bruce, who struck out almost 200 times this year. Uh, his, his salary is $7,500,000. You've got Joey Votto, who drove in, what, 74 runs this year? Making $19 million a year. Brandon Phillips, who hit 260, making $10 million a year. Yes, I think there's complacency on this team. And my prediction is that not everybody on that team that's making those kinds of dollars and is considered a, a shoe-in to be here next year, I think somebody's going to be gone. And I, it wouldn't surprise me if Jay Bruce or Todd Frazier or Brandon Phillips, maybe even Joey Votto, and certainly Bronson Arroyo, will not be on this team next year. Yeah, you, you've been saying that for quite a while. You know, I want to go farther into the Reds and the Indians, but real briefly, I'd like to bring up uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers are playing Atlanta tonight in Game 4. They lead two games to one. Mark, have you heard that they decided they were going to pitch Ricky Nolasco tonight and they've decided to switch and they're going with Kershaw? Yeah, I did hear that. And, you know, it's it's interesting you bring that up because the Dodgers are short a starting pitcher in that rotation. If you're going to be a premier team, they have to uh, – is that three days rest for um, uh, Kershaw? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you really don't want to do that because you're going to now set him back one more day uh, for the next series if they win this thing. But that's a risky move. Uh, and that's what the, that's the weakness of that team. And it, it wouldn't surprise me that the Dodgers, who have a plethora of extra outfielders and, and, and some big names, might be willing to trade away one of their stars. I'm not sure which one it would be, but uh, an outfielder. And the Reds need an outfielder, and the Reds have an extra pitcher. So uh, it would be interesting to see what the Dodgers do in the offseason, but they have what the Reds need, and the Reds have what they need. And that's usually a pretty good combination for a, a mutually beneficial trade. Well, this is really rolling the dice by Don Mattingly, because let, let's take this into consideration. And, I, and I'm wondering, and I'm going to ask you, do you think the fact that St. Louis beat Pittsburgh today played anything into his thinking about going with Kershaw tonight? Because he just switched it a couple of hours ago. And, and follow this, because Game 5 will be Wednesday in St. Louis. And then you've got one day off, and the Game 1 of the National League Championship Series will begin on Friday. So if he throws Kershaw tonight, and they clinch, they win, the, they win that series, they've got Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. He can come back with Kershaw in Game 1 on Friday on three days rest, just like he, he did tonight. Do you think that played any thinking into his consideration tonight? No, and I, I'm not trying to, you know, play manager of the Dodgers, but uh, that's that's a very risky situation because if he is fatigued, let's say he gets beat tonight, and who are you going to pitch tomorrow night if you're the, if, if you're Mattingly? 
You're going to put some in Alaska? Is that, is that, I mean, that, that could be. Point. That would probably it, be. It, yeah. But why would you switch it, those it, two? I don't know. I'd rather save my, my best pitcher for that last game. If you can't get by tonight, you at least have him coming back to try and win it. And he's fully rested. If he gets beat tonight because he is fatigued, you really can't. You can't risk starting him again on three days rest. You can't. You're going to have to give him at least four days, maybe five. Let him catch up. And you not only risk injury, but you, uh, you, know, you also risk not having your starting pitcher ready for the rest of the playoffs. So it's, it's a risky move. I'm sure he went to Kershaw and asked him how he felt. And I don't know how many pitches Kershaw pitched the other night. But, uh, you know, that, it's a risky move, and it's, it's ripe for second-guessing. Uh, but I, I would think if he does start and win tonight, they would give him four days rest. Well, yeah, that, that may very well be. I'm one of the opinion, and I, and I have been ever since I watched Atlanta play a three-game series against the Indians in September. I don't know how the Braves did it this year. I know you've said a lot of times that they hit a lot of home runs and they've got a great bullpen, which they do. I don't know how they won as many games as they did this season. And the Dodgers are really kind of rolling over them. If it wouldn't have been for a couple of errors in Game 2, Atlanta would be gone out of these playoffs right now. And I thought, I'll tell you what, when you look at Atlanta, Mark, and you see that they dropped Ugla off of their playoff roster... That was a gutsy move. Now, granted, Ugla has not had a very good season, but he's one of your highest-priced players. He's one of your better players. He's a good defensive second baseman, better than the guy that they're putting out there now, Elliot Johnson. And they're really rolling the dice, too, in this playoff series. Yeah, you. the question you asked originally is how could they win that division, but look, look who's in that division. Washington was supposed to, to win that division in a walk, but until the last two weeks of the season, they were they were no shows. Then you had the Mets, and you had the Phillies, and you had the Marlins. I mean, that, that's not exactly uh, you know a stalwart division. So they made hay in their own division to build up their record. And now when they have to play somebody tough, it's coming back to roost. But it's it's ironic that up until the last week of the season, it appeared that the Reds, if they would have beaten um, Pittsburgh in that one gamer or had won the division, they would have played Atlanta. And they, they matched up very well against Atlanta. I think the Reds would have beaten Atlanta. So, you know, one game, this changes everything. Careers are changed and uh, positioning in the playoffs are changed. And ultimately, perhaps the, the World Series championship is decided by that one game. So it's it's been a, an interesting year. But Atlanta, I don't think, is anywhere near as good as Cincinnati or Pittsburgh or St. Louis, certainly not the Dodgers. Uh, I would put them maybe eighth or ninth in the, on, the, on the power grid in, in, in the National League. Well, it's time now for our Ask Us segment. This is where you, the fans, get the opportunity to write your questions in to Mark and I about the Reds and the Indians. And you can write us at askus at ultimatesportstalk.com or you can send us a tweet to... Alt Sports Talk or at OHBB co-host. Mark, we're going to start out in Cleveland tonight because a majority of our questions are about the Reds, but nonetheless, we're going to start out in Cleveland. And this one comes from Luke Tribe Fan. And he says, I can't get enough 
of Jason Giambi. Giambi was really one of the key players for the Indians this season. Do you think that he will return to the Indians next year? Well, when I saw this question, Mark, I had to dig this up. This was one of the better moments of the season for the Indians, and I want to replay it. Of course, it was just a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night when the Indians had blown a lead against the Chicago White Sox, and Giambi came up with two outs, a runner on, and the Indians down 5-4 to four in the bottom of the ninth inning. Down the set by Reed. The 1-1 pitch. A swing in the drive! To the right! Away back! Goal! Jason Giambi has done it for the second time off the White Sox! A walk-off game winner! A two-out, two-run blast to right! in September in Cleveland. Oh, what a mob scene. Giambi has come off the bench. And for the third time this year, a pinch hit home run. And Giambi, for the second time, a walk-off game-winning home run against the Chicago White Sox. Okay, two things. First of all, I don't think there's two better baseball announcers in in baseball today than what we've got in Ohio and Marty Brenham and Tom Hamilton, that courtesy of WTAM up in Cleveland. And secondly, Mark, I don't know if you've ever been to Mardi Gras. I don't think it even begins to be Mardi Gras in Cleveland as opposed to New Orleans. Not unless there's a lot of topless women in Cleveland. <laughs> well... There have been a lot of those, but uh, none that you'd really want to compare to the ones in New Orleans. <laughs> you know, I think Jason, you, talk, you and I talked about Jason Giambi earlier today. The guy didn't hit for much. He's 43 years old. He hit 188 on the season. But boy, when he hit, he had most the, the most timely hits for this ball club all year. And I don't think you could ever say that a guy that hit 188 for you during the season was as valuable as Jason Giambi was both on and off the field. This guy, Mark, I'll tell you what, he was caught up in the early part of the steroid scandal. He stood up, took it like a man, admitted to what he did, and this guy, I think, is a Hall of Fame player and he has just totally turned around his character and his reputation in Major League Baseball ever since that happened. I think Giambi is just an outstanding player, outstanding individual. I think he's a future Hall of Famer. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I don't think his statistics bear that out. But uh, I do agree what he did in, in the way he handled that situation. And you're right, th- th- that was early on. And he could have, you know, he could have hid. He could have not stood up like a guy, like a man, and he did. And I think it proves that the fans will forgive and forget if somebody just says, you know, I screwed up. I didn't, I didn't know I was taking something wrong. I did it. I shouldn't have done it. I won't do it again. I apologize. 
but you know, statistically, I'd have to look at his numbers more closely. But I don't, I don't think he is Hall of Fame material just on the stats side. But I could be proved wrong. But no question, he's a Hall of Famer with his his approach to the game, what he means to that team in terms of their their psyche. And I think he had a lot to do with the the team not letting down. A guy like Giambi, if he would be on the Reds, he would kick some serious butt on that team. They, he would not let them get away with the stuff that some of these guys do. And that's what the Reds don't have. And, and kudos to the Indians for signing him. And you're right, he, he hit under 200 this year, but he had some big hits. And really, you know, he energized that team perhaps more than anybody else except for Ancona. Let's move on to the Reds now. Jay Crazy 78 says, In the latter part of the season, Bronson Arroyo looked awful. His worth is dwindling. What type of contract is he really going to get as a free agent? The last time he spoke on the subject, he said he went from three years down to two years. But if he is looking for another $16 million a year contract from anybody, he's not going to get it. Uh, he, I think he's done his job for the Reds. Uh, he has never been a guy that I would depend on in a big game. He, his, he's won consistently 14, 15 games a year, 13 games a year, but he's lost a lot. And that, that indicates to me that he will beat the Chicago Cubs or a team like that but he's not going to beat the Atlanta Braves, or he's not going to beat the New York Yankees. He, he doesn't have the kind of stuff to keep a, a re- really good offensive team off the board. So this year he pitched 202 innings. He gave up 199 hits. Uh, he had a whip of 1.15, and his ERA was 3.79. So he would have games where he would pitch, he would pitch well, but he's not the kind of guy you can build your staff around, and the Reds, if they were to use Chapman as a starter, imagine a rotation, and this is possible. This is possible. They could have Chapman, Sengrani, Latos, Cueto, and Bailey. That means Homer Bailey is your number five starter. He could be a number two starter on most staffs. And then you've got Leak waiting in the wings if somebody gets hurt. So if they sign Arroyo, I honestly, <laughs> I, I may never go to a game again because they ought to take that money and find, honestly, it, it would be the dumbest thing they could do. There's no justification for it. They could go out and take that money and go out and get a number four hitter, plus they're going to have to pay Bailey more this year. He's in arbitration year. They're going to have to pay him. So I, there's no reason, I don't know who our caller was who called in about that, but uh, if you're saying you don't want Arroyo signed, I'm with you, pal. Here's another one. Um, this is from Chris. He says, maybe Dave knows more about this from being an Indians guy, but Scott Boris is completely delusional. There is no way a team will pay $100 million for Shinsu Chu. He's a great hitter, but he's barely an all-star in the outfield. How can he expect to get those types of offers this offseason. Mark, what do you think? Well, I'll just say two words. Michael Bourne. Uh, last year, Bourne, or was it two years ago, uh, when he was a free agent, 
everyone said he was going to be getting ten, twelve, fifteen million dollars a year. What did he end up getting? Eleven. Okay. And how how many years? Four years. He, he's had a four year deal with the Indians. Yeah, he's got a four year deal. It was this was the first year. Okay, so he's at forty four million, and what did he what did he hit this year? Uh, he ended up hitting about two seventy. Yeah, he, he okay. did not have a very good year. Well, that, that's my my point is that those kinds of I think uh, Chu hit about two eighty two, two eighty three this year. He, he had a very very good year, but he's not a guy that I, I think is going to command a you know a, a twelve fifteen million dollar a year contract. And I, I agree with the caller. He, he doesn't have a skill set. That, that justifies that in today's market. Now, he, he hit under 200 against left-handers. His defense, in, in his defense, wasn't, wasn't bad. Uh, he, you know, he made, he made some, it's not the errors that he makes. If, if he puts his glove on a ball, typically he's going to catch it. It's the balls he doesn't run down. So you can't prove a negative. He, he certainly didn't cover the ground like uh, Stubbs did in center field. But if he wanted to sign an eight or nine million dollar contract for four or five years, I would probably do that deal, but not into the tens, elevens, fifteen million dollar a year. It's just it's not worth it. Well, Scott Boris always has a, a habit of blowing and inflating a player's uh, wares up into the ozone. Uh, he did that with Bourne. He's done that before with other players. And, and Mark, what ends up happening is is that he ends up settling somewhere in the middle and owners are getting tired of Scott Boris if you look at what's going on in baseball right now you're finding out that Scott Boris is not a very well liked guy in Major League Baseball and owners are steering away from his players now the reason the Indians deal with Scott Boris I think you'll find this very interesting is that Mark Shapiro's brother is an agent who broke into the profession under Scott Boris. So Scott Boris always goes to Mark Shapiro whenever he's got a player that he may want to get signed, such as Michael Bourne. When Kyle Loesch was running around looking for a team in spring training, who was the team that most people were saying he would probably end up with? The Cleveland Indians. And that's because of the relationship that Mark Shapiro has with Scott Boris. But when you look at it, I, you know, Scott Boris's uh, act is wearing thin among Major League Baseball owners. I don't think Chu's going to get that kind of a, a contract. I agree with you, Mark. If they could move him to left field and, and sign him to an 8 or 9 or, or even maybe a 10-year contract, depending upon how many years you're going to give him, uh, I think he'd be a valuable asset to the Reds. But if you go any higher and go any longer, it's not going to work out. Well, we can, we can confirm confirm these numbers later, but uh, I, what I have in front of me is that Michael Bourne has a $7 million a year salary. And that may not be right, but here on their on their website, it says $7 million. I thought it was that. And no, I remember up. at one time... It, yeah, it, it escalates big time to where the final, okay. the final year... It averages out to $11 million. The final year averages uh, is somewhere around $15, 16000000 million. Okay. Well, I knew I'd seen this this one year at seven million bucks, but again, the 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 value of these guys, I think it's proven that 
there are very few hitters, very few players that are worth the 18 to 20 million dollars that the Reds are going to be paying Joey Votto. And again, that contract, we talk about uh, what could happen to a team. If this, if Joey Votto does not rebound from the kind of year he had this year, where arguably this was not a good year for Joey Votto, not only offensively, but defensively. I, I, I was stunned by some of the errors he made this year. Very lackadaisical. Some of the, the throws he made, and he, he just did not play well. He had some horrific base running gaffes that you wouldn't normally expect of a guy like Joey. But imagine if he continues on this path. The Reds, they owe him $250 million over the next 10 years. It could, that contract could completely bring down this organization for, for well over a decade. And that's the fear of overpaying these guys. And, and frankly, I remember uh, last year that some of the contracts out there, these guys were wanting were in the $15, $20 million a year, and people didn't sign them. They waited until spring training to sign them. Some of these guys with these big deals, it just didn't happen. So it, it appears the the ownership is getting a lot more picky about what they do with their money, and I think that's the right thing to do. Mark, I heard, I heard this uh, correlation a few years ago. What does Bob Castellini do? How did he make his money? He was in the produce business. He still is. Okay. And uh, made all the money in the produce world. All right. How many guys in the produce world, in his produce industry, during the time that he was building this company and business up, did he ever give a 10-year contract to? <laughs> None. Okay, but now, David, that's my to... point. Why Why do these owners, not only just in baseball, but in football and basketball also, they've made their billions on running a business, but when they get into sports, their business model and business mind just goes right out the window, and they start signing guys to seven, eight, nine, ten-year contracts that they would have never given to anybody inside their legitimate business. Yeah, I think that has come back to haunt enough owners that that's why I think they're backing off on some of these things. But don't forget, these guys, these, these owners, particularly when you have a team like the Reds, or the Indians for that matter, they're playing with house money. In other words, the money they get from Major League Baseball just by being a franchise pays for all the salaries. I mean, that, that's an amazing, and that doesn't include the TV contracts that they're getting. And the new TV contract is going to be hundreds of millions of dollars for some teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Phillies, the Cubs. So you're going to see these salaries go up, but it really has nothing to do with their bottom line. And, and don't forget, every time they pay a salary, that's an expense. They can write it off, and a lot of these guys use their baseball ownership uh, they, they purposely have a loss with it, so they, they, they don't pay taxes against other income. So it's, it's funny money to a large extent that they're playing with, but they're not reaching into their own pockets to do this. I mean, the, the franchises are so valuable. Once you put the initial capital in to, to buy a major league franchise, 
it basically pays for itself. Now, you can go crazy like the Dodgers did, and what's their contracts this year worth? $250 well, million, $300 million. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So, but, but it's all because Fox is paying them huge amounts of money for the TV rights in Los Angeles. Nothing to do with the people showing up at the ballpark eating hot dogs. They can run that team just on the TV contracts. So it's mm-hmm. it's simple. my point is you can't really have a corollary between what Major League Baseball does and what you and I would do in running a business. Well, I, I agree and I disagree with that. I mean, you look at all right. Let, let's take the the farming industry. For example, they get farm subsidies. Ninety-five percent of the farmers out there get farm subsidies. That a majority of them live off of those farm subsidies throughout the year. Now they'll use those farm subsidies, but they'll put most of them in the bank and they'll live off of what they farm farm on. I mean, you could you could correlate that to what's going on in Major League Baseball. The subsidies being the network contracts, the produce being the ticket the tickets that they sell at the gate, uh, you know, most, and, and these owners, I mean, they just go hog wild on these 10-year contracts. I mean, I, I thought the Votto deal was a little goofy at the time. I really thought Pujols' deal with the Angels was nuts. Now, they seem to catch their sanity when they, they signed uh, Josh Hamilton to only a five-year deal. Uh, but you look at some of these players, Mark, and, and I, I would never sign a player to a 10-year deal. I talked to, to uh, Tony Lastoria, and we're going to have more of his interview on in, in our final show next week. But one of the things that he said was Ubaldo Jimenez, talking about Ubaldo Jimenez with the Indians, how the, he, uh, he and the Indians have a mutual option for next year. Either one of them can opt out of the contract. He thinks Jimenez, just based upon the last half of the season that he had this year, where he had the best ERA and the best record in the American for the Indians, but the best ERA in all of baseball since the All-Star break, he'll opt out of the contract, and he thinks he'll sign a four- or five-year deal with somebody next year for megabucks, anywhere from 12 to $15 million a year. I submit to you, Mark, that the only time he ever pitched during the contract that Colorado gave him a year before the Indians got him was in the last two months of this season when he knew he was in a salary drive. I would, you know, maybe a player two, three years, okay. I'd give him two, three years. Maybe four, depending upon what their history has been. But I would never go a five-year, six, seven, eight-year deal if I was owning a ball club. You're just putting yourself into a financial bind. Well, I can't disagree with you, and I think the Reds are... Uh, an example of a team that has put a lot of eggs into this basket of, of, of the current roster. A lot of money is being spent on guys in long-term contracts, and it's all fine when it works out. But I think the Cardinals are a perfect example of a team that's done it right. You know, I think a year ago, if you would have asked either you or me, who was going to be on the Cardinals roster this year? We couldn't have named 60 or 70 percent of that team. A lot of guys came up this year, had fantastic years, guys you never heard of, uh, or their second year, they just their their farm system is so filled, and then they they had the wisdom 
to not sign Pujols. That was that was a brilliant move not to sign him. And if you remember the Cardinal fans going ballistic because they didn't sign him. I mean, he was an icon. Uh, but he he is a. I remember back in the day they said that Frank Robinson was an old thirty. Well, Pujols is an old thirty-two. Uh, he is. He's overweight. He's he's far too big. Uh, he's going to continue to get hurt, and I doubt he'll ever come close to the statistics he he accumulated with the Cardinals. So kudos to the Cardinals. They they know their talent. They know what they need, and they keep churning and they keep reloading. And if you want to look at a team that's being well run, uh, it's the St. Louis Cardinals. And they got pretty smart after Jockety left, didn't they? Yeah, they did. It's amazing. <laughs> hey, we got two more quick questions. Uh, here's a good one from Amanda. Any chance we could see Ezdrubal Cabrera in a Reds uniform next season? The Reds did the rent-a-player this year with Shinsu Chu, and it paid off, and they desperately need a shortstop that can hit. You and I have talked about this, Mark. I think Cabrera would look good in a Reds uniform. Yeah, I think he would, but I think there's other priorities, and I disagree a little bit. I, I think uh, Zach Cozart can hit. He, he has hit. Uh, for a shortstop, he had a pretty good year this year. After the, the slow start, he ended up hitting about two, 256, 257, 12, 13 home runs, drove in a lot of runs for a shortstop, and he's only going to get better. So I don't think the Reds would look there. What I wish the Reds would do is look for a catcher. They need some more catching help. Ryan Hannigan, uh, he's not the answer. He's a good defensive catcher. If you're going to carry three catchers, he's your third one. But the Reds need help at third. They need help in left field. They need help behind the plate. Uh, so I don't think shortstop is going to be something they're going to be looking for. Well, Puck writes into us tonight and says, Dave, who will the Indians get to replace Chris Perez as closer next season? I think it's a foregone conclusion Chris Perez is gone. He might as well sell his house. I don't know where the dog's going to go because I think he's still on probation. But nonetheless, I think Chris Perez is gone from Cleveland. They'll probably look, first of all, at Vinny Pistano, who had an injured arm this year, really had an off year. Then they'll go to Cody Allen. Joe Smith is a free agent. And I've heard some rumblings, Mark. You're going to find this hard to believe. Brian Wilson uh, could become an Indian next year and come in and close games. They think his arm is sound after pitching the last half of the year for the Dodgers. And, and quite honestly, I didn't think Wilson looked all that bad for the Dodgers this year. No, I've already figured out who is going to be your reliever next year. <laughs> okay. Would you like to? Would you like to hear? Go ahead, Mr. Broxton. He's coming to Cleveland. You heard it here first. Well, uh, uh, that that means we'll have, for the second straight year, we'll have a closer that likes the munchies. So <laughs> there, there, there you go on that one. Hey, Mark, one, here's one more quick question. I love this question. The, nobody has been eliminated as of yet. And here's the question. I want to hear your dream World Series matchup and your nightmare World Series matchup? My dream is Boston and Los Angeles. Huh. And I, I guess my my nightmarish would be, you know, I, I wouldn't mind seeing Pittsburgh in there, just because, you know, they haven't won for so long. But uh, I think Atlanta against uh, Oakland might be my the worst matchup I can imagine. How about you? 
my nightmare is Boston, Los Angeles, because all you well, hear about not... for over two weeks is that trade. That that'll be the headline yeah, that's story. That's that's. that's... Yeah, that's, that's why I like nightmare. <laughs> my my dream World Series matchup, you're not going to believe this. Pittsburgh and Detroit, because I just love watching baseball in the snow. <laughs> yeah, that would that, be interesting that, because it, it, that, that would serve yeah. Major League Baseball. But think about it Boston. Would, in the, think about Boston in October. Oh, yeah. Can be awesome. Yeah. It, it would be fantastic. Hey, next week we're going to go over uh, we'll go over your ten things that the Reds can do next week. I'll come up with ten things that the Indians can do. Uh, we'll also have a preview of probably pretty close to what we think the World Series will be, and that's going to do it for another year uh, on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Our next next show next Monday night will be the last one. Mark, until then, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, David. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, but also most of all to you for listening and for our Ask Us segment. Until next Monday night at 9 o'clock for our final show of the season. Have a good week, everyone. Good night.